So please uh, <clears throat> let yourselves get settled down and um, sit in a comfortable posture for meditation, cross-legged or kneeling or in a chair or however you choose. First of all, just take a moment uh, to notice how you feel. It always helps just to take uh, a brief stock of what the mood is. Do we feel inspired, tired, happy, depressed? Whatever it might be, just take a moment to notice what that, uh, that tone, the mood of, of this moment is. feeling the, the presence of the body. How is it? 
Do we feel light or heavy? Comfortable, uncomfortable? Hot? Cool? How is it? Just to notice what we brought into the to the room with us. What's our starting point? Now <coughs> recognizing this is the, the material that we're working with, this body, this mind. Then we can let our uh, our actions, our attitude guide the body and mind towards that which is going to be helpful, useful, beneficial for us. Are feeling the presence of the, of the spine, bringing attention to, the, to your backbone. Let's invite the body to, to sit upright, let the spine lengthen, stretch to its full natural extension. Letting this bring a quality of of alertness, attentiveness to what we're doing. Helping to brighten, energize the body, the mind. And then around the, the spine is the central column, the axis of our physical world. Let's take a few moments to let the rest of the body relax in a full and complete way. The muscles of the face, neck and shoulders. Relaxing the arms and hands. Relaxing the trunk of the body, letting our chest be a little more open. the abdomen soft and relaxed, free from tension. the hips and the legs, letting them soften and loosen. Inviting the whole body to be at ease, to settle. 
this particular time, this particular place. It's giving ourselves permission. to let go of all tension, to be alert, attending to the present moment. And to sustain or establish that attention on the present, just take a simple meditation object, like the feeling of the breath, without changing or modulating the breath in any deliberate way. Just let the natural rhythm of the breathing be the, the center of attention for the next little while. feeling each inhalation, each exhalation, inviting the mind to, to rest, to settle in this moment.
inviting the mind, the attention to settle. To just be with this present moment. The weight of the body. (coughs) The breath entering and leaving. The simplicity of this moment. When you find the attention has drifted away, just to let go, come back to the, the present moment. Letting the breath be like a, a central point. A flag marking this, this very moment. And when you find the mind is becoming distracted, you set the intention to follow the breath, but then next thing we know, we're planning next week, recollecting a conversation of earlier this morning, 
a movie we watched last night, remembering our grandmother's cottage in a foreign country. Whenever you notice that the mind has drifted off and they're in the middle of that movie replaying that dialogue, off in that childhood visit, then see if you can follow it back. Whenever the mind comes to, if you like, in that, the middle of that distraction, see if you can trace it back. What was the chain of thought that led up to that association? What was the string of connections? See if you can trace it back, following the line from the thought of her grandmother's cottage, the memory of the movie, the plan for the coming week, whatever it might be. See if you can follow the, the string of, of thoughts and associations and to see where it came from. Did it come from the sound of the crow, a feeling in your knee, a random memory of a, of a fragrance? Where did it come from? But whenever you find some kind of string of distraction, of conceptual proliferation, See if you can follow it back, theme by theme, thought by thought, to see where it came from. And then once you get to the root, when you say, recognize, oh, it was just the sound of the crow. It was that feeling in my knee. Stay with that, that perception for a moment. Stay with that simple recognition. Feel the tone of that, the simplicity of that. And then after a moment, just let go, go back to the breath. Re-establish the attention with the present.
And we can extend this practice one, one step further, exploring the, the quality of conflict just by deliberately bringing to mind some occasion that had a powerful impact on us, some person that we have argued with, an ex-partner, parent, child, co-worker, co-monastic, bringing to mind just uh, some occasion of, of conflict, of a difference of opinion. You don't need the whole story, just uh, the very briefest of, of thoughts to, to launch that. Usually just uh, a single word is enough, like him. <laughs> or bhikkhuni ordination. Uh oh, monastic oh, world, the boss. Just to trigger it with a single word or a couple of words, and to just see and know, feel the the chain of of thoughts and feelings that get triggered by that. And so deliberately launching letting that papancha stream be deliberately launched. And in the same way, just as that takes off and the string of images and feelings and memories, ideas, I'm going to say this, and then he'll say that, and then I'll say this, and then she's going to do, and then I will. (coughs) Just listening to all of that. And then in the same way, noticing how that feels. And following it back.
The mind can get drawn into this stream, flood of associations, memories, plans, ideas. But when you notice this got really lost and we're caught up, follow it back. Take it right back. So each chain, each link, back to where it began, just with a single word, him, the boss. How simple that original word is, just a single idea. the event, her, the guy, mom. It's a single, single simple word, and yet it can give rise to this whole, this whole flood, this whole ocean of associations. Qualities of pressure and tension, stress. And when we come back, when we follow it back to that, s- that single, simple word, that simple idea, how does it feel? What's the tone? What's the quality of that? Before all of the 
thought and association gets launched from it. What's here? Right at the very root of it.
like to, <coughs> like to uh, open things up for a few minutes if people have any questions, um, particularly about the the uh, practices I've been describing it so far. Uh, I'll ask you to wait until the wandering microphone arrives. There was a, a, a hand up there by the pillar. Yeah. I'm going to need your help in passing it, too, I think. You're recording it, so that's why we're asking. Yes, Monty, um, I wanted to ask you, how would you have suggested that Ajahn Sumedho handle that dilemma? <laughs> um, well, second-guessing <laughs> other people's conduct is... Uh, <coughs> Uh, is a tricky. Uh, well, if it was you. If it was me. <laughs> okay. um, well, in a perfect world, what I would have done would have been to uh, find one of the the other senior monks who was there um, uh, prior to the meeting or, or during that time, and have taken a, a few minutes to say, "Look, I, I feel really critical of." Of this monk's behavior, and he seems to be—he uh, he seems to be upsetting so many people, and it seems to be so out of order, and uh, and so this seems really, really inappropriate to me. Um, but Lumpur doesn't seem to be saying anything about it. Uh, is there some sort of reason, or could you throw some light on that, and then getting a bit more of a of a background? Um, uh, or even if um, not even just talking to one of the other monks or just t finding time to, to talk with Ajahn Chah when there's, there's not that many other people around or you're not making it some sort of public display. The way that things tended to operate, it was hard to catch Lumpur Chah alone because there's like an, sort of an open field of... You, you didn't get like a private interview. I mean, there's no such thing. It's just he would receive people under his, uh, under his hut and anybody and everybody who wanted to show up did. So it was hard to catch a, a, a time alone. Um, uh, but, you know, occasionally, you, if you were patient, you could. And so just to be, if there was a time where it was not, like, in front of everybody else, or it was at least reasonably quiet, just to say, you know, Lumpur, um, I find I'm getting a lot of my defilements are coming up around this monk. And I'm noticing all this kind of aversion and indignation. And, uh, you know, I really feel I'm right in criticizing him. But um, I notice that you're not saying anything. So um, could you let me know why that is? Or, or what's your perspective? Yes, there's a... Down here the, with the uh, blue jumper. Here it comes. I was just noticing when thoughts began and I was trying to bring them back, they seem to come out of nowhere. They don't necessarily come from a body sensation or from mm -hmm. anything. It's mm -hmm. just like a little bubble and mm -hmm. uh, couldn't really catch the moment the story arose. And it wasn't just from a word. It was mm -hmm. just a whole sentence. Uh -huh. Well, that, that in itself is revealing, I find. Because you, you sometimes, 
um, I mean, in a way, it's a bit tricky trying to, trying to do this as a particular exercise because then it's like you've got all the lights on and you're watching so that the, the, the <laughs> chemistry doesn't quite work in the same way. <laughs> but uh, what, you, what you can find is that sometimes the mind will be lost in some whole big story and, all it, and it just began with some sort of random bubble not associated with anything of any significance. But you still find yourself really excited about this or irritated about that or frightened by the other. And then, uh, and that seems very real and we're caught in the story. But it just began from some, you know, just random firing of, uh, of the memory process. And, and so it's based on nothing very much. Right, so it doesn't have to be based on a sense contact. Not particularly. Well, the, well thought is a, is a sense contact. It's the, that's the sixth sense, is, is the mind, and then dhammas, or mental phenomena, is what uh, is the, the object. So that, that is a, an arising of a sense object. Uh, but it, it's, it, to me, I found that always very revealing, where it's apropos of absolutely nothing. It was just, it came out of nowhere, just the, the random firing of a, of a human body and mind. And yet it turns into this whole big, I got it, I got it, or I can't stand it, or I've had enough of this. And there, was, there, was a, there, was, there wasn't even a story there. <laughs> it was just, uh, 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 just a uh, com- almost completely random event. The, there was no real seed, but yet it still caught some fuel and took off and came alive on its own. And that the more that we recognize that process of conceptual proliferation and realize that how insubstantial it is all the way from the, from the beginning and, and then what it's, things are usually based on, it, what it does is it creates a, a, a much more of a clear context. Like, oh, this is based on nothing very much. This doesn't really have a root or a source. It's just my, it's completely my fabrication. Is that helpful? Yeah, another one down here. Um, so I wanted to ask um, if this person is harming, is is doing, is hurting some other mm-hmm. others. Like I'm going back to the story about the monk. Mm-hmm. So when is, and I know I'm right to protect. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say it's your sibling who's hurting their children or mm-hmm. something like that. And so when. Uh, and how and like what what is the red line where where do you let let them do what they do well that that's the really the big issue um because it's not saying that you know every action is inappropriate what the 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 this um what we're talking about is that the way that we pick up a situation and then in a sense, it, what it's to do is it's learning how to respond rather than react. So that when you say, if, you, if a sibling is harming their children, then rather than the mind saying, that's terrible, you know, he shouldn't be doing that, uh, you know, and, and then just jumping right in with your, um, your immediate reaction, then there's, a, there's a, uh, a, uh, in a way, a, uh, you're establishing or developing a breadth of vision you're opening the mind to the situation. Okay, now, this seems to be really wrong. The kids are being hurt. Now, what what can be done to help the situation? So you're opening the the field 
Um, and this is a, a quality call, uh, called uh, sati sampajanya, which means mindfulness and, and clear comprehension or clear awareness. So you're paying attention to the object, but also the context within which it appears. And so that's a lot to do with um, this, this theme, like practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma. It's like, okay, I can see um, it's a pro- it seems to be appropriate to take some action here. Now, what's going to be effective? And so you then bring in your qualities of, of uh, perception. You're seeing how the thing is. You're, you're using your experience of what's happened in the past, the person, other people's characters, their own uh, personality traits, and so on. And so that it's not encouraging a, just passivity, like, oh, it's just phenomena arising, passing away. You know, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, you're... <laughs> But, uh, you know, you can't say, oh, yeah, all, well, all, all sankharas arise and pass. That's just you know, the way things are. And it's not encouraging a passivity, which is just being stupid. I mean, it's like that's wrongly grasping the Dharma. So it's more how. It's how. It's all to do with how. And that that, um, that comes out of a, a real attunement, a mindfulness uh, of the situation. And so... Um, uh, that sort of was part of the, the, my intention for, for the day, is also to, to be looking at that. Um, so how do we choose appropriate action? What it would, because uh, it's, the, it's not the taking action that's the problem. It's not that even opinions are the problem. It's, it's the, the clinging to them and thinking that, okay, this, this feeling of rightness or this this perception, isn't, is, uh, we're taking that to be an absolute truth. And therefore, anything that I do based on that is, is, uh, is good. In, in Christianity, this, uh, there's a, an extreme version of this. is called the antinomian heresy. Um, not to get too technical, but it, what it means is that anything that you do in the name of Jesus is good. And it's, um, uh, it's like a... It's not just confined to, to, say, Christian theological thinking. It's also the basis of um, uh, going to war with people. We're the good guys, so we must be right. So anything that we do to the bad guys is is justified. That's the antinomian. If it's done in my name, then it's it's therefore good. Um, That's a really extreme version, but um, it's uh, in a way it spells it out. And that uh, it's really to do with uh, a circumspection, having a circumspect view and being mindful of a whole situation and then being guided by that. Then our, our actions and intentions, are our own sense of what's appropriate, then can, can have a good result. Maybe there was a... You had a question. This one on the front. So, uh, two things. I think of the the big mouth monk mm-hmm. who um, he could have done the same process instead of reacting and leaving the monastery. Mm-hmm. He could have just stayed. Mm-hmm. So it works both ways in any situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I can't control what you do. 
I can only have a control over what I do. So, I mean, it's, what you say is absolutely so correct. Skill, yeah, if he would have been skillful, he would have sat and see his reaction and see that it started maybe from a physical sensation mm -hmm. of fear or mm -hmm. and not buy into the whole story and, mm -hmm. and be able okay. Yeah. And but also just to to um to put a I mean that that's very true. And I think that's, that's an important point. Um culturally in in, in Thailand, uh, being shamed in front of other people. Uh, some, someone confronting you and shaming you—that is absolutely the worst thing. That's like that is. Well, there's, there's a kind of. Yeah, not not just in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's, yeah, I right. mean, I would it's have done the same thing. Right, it's particularly it's particularly strong there. Yeah. Yeah. So to be to put somebody on the spot in public yeah. is really like in a, in a sense there's almost nowhere to go with that. It's like. Well, I yeah, I was just thinking that. You know, if I can apply this this skill of meditation that you taught us to track back mm -hmm. in any situation, um, you know, it's very useful, but I put myself mm -hmm. into the big mouth uh, monk and whew, what a, I mean, you need a really strong practice to mm -hmm. stay after such a hit. Mm -hmm. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> exactly. And um, the second point, I've been exploring um, the question, is, is there a skillful use of anger? Like I've heard that f there's a skillful use of fear. There's a, fear can be skillful. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it stops us getting run over by the traffic. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I was wondering if it's the same with anger, and I remember reading about Deepama who says, no, absolutely not. There is no room for anger. So in our way to react, or act, I should mm -hmm. say, after hopefully being aware, it should neutralize the anger at that point. Mm -hmm. So that means there would not be room for anger in our action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say exactly. Um, there's a, a, uh, a well-known little exchange that, uh, in one or two of Ram Dass's books where he comes to his teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, with the same question. He says, yeah, is there any place for, for anger in, in, in spiritual life? And uh, so uh, his guru said, absolutely not. Mm. There's, uh, anger is completely incompatible with, with any kind of genuine spiri spirituality. However, and just as Deepama had a similar response, he said, however, sometimes certain teachings are best delivered at high volume <laughs> and with a great precision and, uh, and a definite em emphatic uh, impact. On the, on the listener, and Sharon Salzberg was asking Deepamar about, um, you know, what, what do you do as a, a, a Western woman traveling in India getting you know, harassed by various people? She's just had some really unpleasant incident where some guy had been um, propositioning her or fondling her in the street. And so Deepamar said, well, you establish loving kindness firmly in your heart 
and then you take your umbrella and you strike. <laughs> firmly. Right on the top of the head, you know. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> I understand, but it is so highly skillful. Oh, yeah. So that I, what I say is there's no room for anger, but to be fierce <laughs> is something different. And if you're around any of the, the, pretty much most of the very experienced and highly accomplished Buddhist teachers, that almost uh, invariably, even people like Deepama will, will manifest fierceness from time, time to time. I heard and you definitely know, like, you're, you're in, the, in the face of a flamethrower. You know, but there's no anger there. That's it, like, yeah. There was a, there was a time where um, an incident with uh, Ajahn Chah, where he was v very well known for having, a, when he was a younger monk, he had a very hot temper and could be very fierce, very, kind of, uh, very angry. Um, and so he had that capacity to draw on you know, uh, that sort of intense expression. One time there was a, there was a monk who had uh, broken some serious rules in the, in the monastery and, uh, and, he was in a, and uh, so he was going through this period of, uh, of sort of formal penance and that kind of thing. So uh, one, this, uh, another monk was, was giving Ajahn Chara a foot massage at this time. So he's sitting there uh, massaging his, his feet and his legs and this other monk who misbehaved that came along, and Ajahn Chah spoke to him in this really abrupt way, and was really kind of, uh, kind of terse and um, harsh with him. Like, do this, go over there, you know. uh, don't do that, that's all wrong, get out of here. And, and so this, and this exchange went on for like five minutes or so, and the other monk sort of went scurrying off. And then, and then oh, when he'd gone, then Ajahn Chah carried on with the conversation with the monk who was giving the foot massage. And the one who was doing his feet said not, not for a second during that whole time was there any extra tension in his body. His body was totally relaxed and at, and at ease the whole time while he was ripping this guy's head off. He was, he, so he was, it was appropriate for him to be fierce with that other monk. That was a, the suitable thing. But it, he wasn't, he had no hurtful intent and that uh, there was no tension or no... Uh, no uh, attitude of, of um, harming within him. And that was really evidenced in his body. There was like he was completely at ease. There was no sort of, no, no tightening. So that would be the criteria because when you're talking, I go, wow, fierce, fierceless, fierce. Fierce. And anger are very close, but yet they're, their outcome is very different. Mm -hmm. So I need to know the difference. <laughs> That's where I went. Yeah. And I say, what makes the two different? What? And sounds like it's the tension. If I would feel tension in my body, unskillful. Well, that's more of, a, of an outcome or a symptom. It's more to do with the attitude. Uh, fierceness is, a, is applied with no intention of harming. There's no attitude of... When you're angry, you want to harm, and that there's a there's a um, uh, a divisiveness there. 
when there's when there's fierceness, it's coming from, uh, and when that's based on on a, a wholesome attitude. I mean, it is incredibly difficult to be clear about it, because righteous indignation is a exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not just an idea, but it's a genuine. This is because I love you. It's like you wrench the kid's T-shirt as they're running out into the street after the ball. You, you, you wrench the T-shirt because they're about to run in front of a truck. It's because you love the kid that you're, you're acting in that violent way. Right? Um, there's no doubt in your mind. You're not, you're not, there's no hate. There's no harming intent there. So it's, it's, a, it's to do with uh, clarifying the attitude and establishing that, that attitude. And that's why this this process is, uh, or this kind of exploration is so helpful because it helps us to see our attitude up really close and that uh, we're not just establishing a good reason <laughs> and then letting them have it. You know, because that's where the whole antinomian heresy or the, the um, I've got to do this, I've got to destroy you for your own good, I'm going to give you democracy whether I have to kill you to do it. Right. You know, it's... Uh, a, uh, it's not just having a good rationale, but it's a, 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 a something much, much deeper. It's that, a genuine attitude of caring. And out of that caring comes that, can come that, that fierce delivery, because that's what's appropriate at that time. That's what's going to be useful. Well, they seem like near enemies. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay, one more, and then we'll have a period of walking meditation. Love you. Hi. So based on what you're saying, then our hands do not get angry. I would say so. They might be very fierce. So they might look, because my understanding, we were having this conversation about Mahabua, mm-hmm. that he looks, based on the book or whatever, very angry. His oh, yeah, actions he acts, look angry. He acts that way too. But he's not angry then. <laughs> no. Like there was a, as this Ajahn Mahabur, she's talking about, who's one of the famous arahants of Thailand, like the most highly respected of monks in Thailand. Um, and, uh, and he's a really crusty character. He's a real sort of old curmudgeon. Um, and uh, so sometimes it's, it's confusing for people. There was, many years ago, there was this fellow from, from Britain, uh, George Sharp, who was the, the head of a Buddhist group in London that had... Um, they were the, originally the, the group that invited our community to come from Thailand and establish a, a branch there. And uh, In earlier years, they'd had a close connection with Ajahn Mahabur. And um, Ajahn Mahabur had visited London, and his senior Western monk had been one of the original monks of that vihara in London in the 50s, Ajahn Panyawado. So George Sharp, this, this fellow from London, had gone to Ajahn Mahabur's monastery and was inviting him to come to England and had to teach there, and so he went uh, to what's called Wat Bantat. He went to Ajahn Mahabur's monastery, and uh, and when when he went there, he was given this very kind of cold reception. Ajahn Mahabur was very kind of curt and blunt with him, and and uh, was uh, somewhat sort of off-putting, and um, uh, and then this several encounters over the first few days that George was there, it was the same kind of tone. That he was just, you know, seemed to be very grumpy and and uh, and irritated and um, and George, he's he's English, so he's 
he's got a sort of reserved style, but he's, he's, he's much more of an outspoken Brit than most. <laughs> and so uh, after a few days, he decided, okay, well, I'm going to ask about this through the translator. And he, he said, you know, Tanajan, um, I came here all the way from England in order to receive teachings and to invite you to come and teach in, in London. And um, whenever we've met, you've been rude, you've been, you know, uh, kind of off-putting, you know, off you've been impatient, you've uh, been dismissive with me as far as I can tell. Um, I don't think I'm being uh, inaccurate. And he sort of, the translator said, yeah, it's true. <laughs> he said, so, so I'm confused uh, as to, um, you know, why you're being so rude. So that's extremely outspoken for a Brit to <laughs> talk like that. But George is a very forthright character. And so Ajahn Mahavur just sort of cracked up and said, he just started laughing and laughing. Oh, that's just my personality, you know. <laughs> don't, 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 make, don't make anything out of that. That's nothing. That's just, I'm just a rude guy. <laughs> Sorry, you know. I'm just a coarse, rude guy. And that, um, that's, my, that's, the, that's the, the surface of it. And so... Uh, People who know him very well is, uh, are uh, familiar with that. But uh, when you see photographs of him, it's like they really have to, to, <laughs> to, to uh, think, uh, is this guy's into loving kindness? <laughs> but, so there, but there's a difference between personality traits and purity of heart. And so that there's a, uh, someone can be totally enlightened and, and can have like Ajahn Mahabur can, can have a, a character type that's quite um, uh, off-putting or, or aggressive, but there's no, there's no uh, harming attitude, no, um, no cruelty or no unkindness in his heart. It's just the, the way things come out. He'd say, I'm a bo I was a boxer. You know, I'm an aggressive guy. It's like that's how it comes out. I don't mean, uh, you know, I don't mean any harm, but just. And if you read his dhamma talks, there's a lot of boxing analogies. You know, you go into the get in the ring with the kilesa, the defilements, and you keep whacking them and whacking them. And if they knock you down, you get up and you whack them again and, until you get that killer punch in, and then the kilesas go down and they never get up. You know, I mean, you don't hear Jack Cornfield talking like that very often. <laughs> Or even or deeper, Ma, you know, they don't have that. But that's his his conditioning or his personality type is that sort of punchy, coarse uh, type of, of pattern. But it's that's just the skin, you know, the, the 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 surface. Okay, well, let's have a period of, of walking meditation now for half an hour or so. Um, so um, there's a lot of us here gathered today. I'm not sure. Is there a retreat going on? Up the hill? Okay, so we'll need to stay this side of the, the gate. But there's plenty of room uh, outside and, and around. So uh, we'll do walking meditation now for about half an hour. And one of the, the ways I thought of, of um, uh, developing this, this uh, method of tracing back um, trains of, of thought, and also because when you're doing walking meditation, it tends to be much easier for the mind to wander. Um, if you're walking down the path, then you want to use, you find a stretch of ground about 20, 30 uh, uh, paces long. 
But as you're walking down the path, you're aiming to keep your, your feet, the feeling of your feet uh, as you walk, as the focus of attention. But if you find that the mind has wandered and you get down to the end of the path and you're off in Himachal Pradesh or you're back in the, the, you know, the, the faculty meeting of last week or you're, you're, um, you, uh, you're rehearsing a conversation you've got to have with your, your stupid sibling. <laughs> and then when you get to the end of the path and you, you find you're in the middle of this memory or this conversation, then when you turn around and go back down the other way, follow the train of thought back. <laughs> This is an entirely unique form of meditation. <laughs> came to me last night. So. Uh, so see if you, as you walk in the opposite direction, you don't have to walk backwards, just walk. <laughs> but as you walk down the path in the other way, just see if you can follow what the, the run-up to, uh, to that thought was. And then, but you know, when, uh, when you've come back to zero, then just bring your, your attention back to your feet again. Okay, so it's about... Uh, Five past eleven now, so if the bell can be rung to bring people in at 11.35, where's our ringer there, okay?